0: Section 4, Chapter 24 of the History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by S.T. Macduff. The History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 24, Section 4. It may with confidence be affirmed that William would never have stooped to be the pensioner of France. But it was with difficulty that he was, at this conjecture, dissuaded from throwing up the government of England. When first he threw out hints about retiring to the continent, his ministers imagined that he was only trying to frighten them into making a desperate effort to obtain for him an efficient army. But they soon saw reason to believe that he was in earnest. That he was in earnest indeed can hardly be doubted, for, in a confidential letter to Heinsius, whom he could have no motive for deceiving, he intimated his intention very clearly. I foresee, he writes, that I shall be driven to take an extreme course, and that I shall see you again in Holland sooner than I had imagined. In fact, he had resolved to go down to the Lords to send for the Commons and to make his last speech from the throne. That speech he actually prepared and had it translated. He meant to tell his hearers that he had come to England to rescue their religion and their liberties, that for that end he had been under the necessity of waging a long and cruel war, that the war had, by the blessing of God, ended in an honorable and advantageous peace, and that the nation might now be tranquil and happy, if only those precautions were adopted which he had, on the first day of the session, recommended as essential to the public security. Since however the estates of the realm thought fit to slight his advice, and to expose themselves to the imminent risk of ruin, he would not be the witness of calamities which he had not caused, and which he could not avert. He must therefore request the houses to present to him a bill providing for the government of the realm. He would pass that bill and withdraw from a post in which he could no longer be useful. But he should always take a deep interest in the welfare of England, and if what he foreboded should come to pass, if in some day of danger she should again need his services, his life should be hazarded as freely as ever in her defense. When the king showed his speech to the chancellor, the wise minister forgot for a moment his habitual self-command. This is extravagance, sir, he said. This is madness. I implore your majesty, for the sake of your own honor, not to say to anybody else what you have said to me. He argued the matter during two hours, and no doubt lucidly and forcibly. William listened patiently, but his purpose remained unchanged. The alarm of the ministers seems to have been increased by finding that the king's intention had been confided to Marlborough, the very last man to whom such a secret would have been imparted unless William had really made up his mind to abdicate in favor of the princess of Denmark. Somers had another audience and again began to expostulate, but William cut him short. We shall not agree, my lord, my mind is made up. Then, sir, said Summers, I have to request that I may be excused from assisting as Chancellor at the fatal act which Your Majesty meditates. It was from my King that I received the seal, and I beg that he will take it from me while he is still my King." In these circumstances the Ministers, though with scarcely the faintest hope of success, determined to try what they could do to meet the King's wishes. A select committee had been appointed by the House of Commons to frame a bill for the disbanding of all the troops above 7,000. A motion was made by one of the court party that this committee should be instructed to reconsider the number of men. Vernon acquitted himself well in the debate. Montague spoke with even more than his wanted ability and energy, but in vain. So far was he from being able to rally round him such a majority as that which had supported him in the preceding Parliament, that he could not count on the support even of the placemen who sat at the same executive board with him. Thomas Pelham, who had only a few months before been made a Lord of the Treasury, tried to answer him. I own, said Pelham, that last year I thought a large land force necessary. This year I think such a force unnecessary. But I deny that I have been guilty of any inconsistency. Last year the great question of the Spanish secession was unsettled, and there was serious danger of a general war. That question has now been settled in the best possible way, and we may look forward to many years of peace." A Whig of still greater note and authority, the Marquess of Hartington, separated himself on this occasion from the Junto. The current was irresistible. At last the voices of those who tried to speak for the instruction were drowned by clamor. When the question was put, there was a great shout of no, and the minority submitted. To divide would have been merely to have exposed their weakness by this time it became clear that the relations between the executive government and the parliament were again what they had been before the year sixteen ninety five the history of our polity at this time is closely connected with the history of one man hitherto montague's career had been more splendidly and uninterruptedly successful than that of any member of the house of commons since the house of commons had begun to exist and now fortune had turned by the tories he had long been hated as a whig and the rapidity of his rise, the brilliancy of his fame, and the unvarying good luck which seemed to attend him had made many Whigs his enemies. He was absurdly compared to the upstart favourites of a former age, Carr and Villiers, men whom he resembled in nothing but in the speed with which he had mounted from a humble to a lofty position. They had, without rendering any service to the State, without showing any capacity for the conduct of great affairs, been elevated to the highest dignities, in spite of the murmurs of the whole Nation, by the mere partiality of the Sovereign. Montague owed everything to his own merit and to the public opinion of his merit. With his master he appears to have had very little intercourse, and none that was not official He was in truth a living monument of what the Revolution had done for the country. The Revolution had found him a young student in a cell by the cam, poring on the diagrams which illustrated the newly discovered laws of centripetal and centrifugal force, writing little copies of verses, and indulging visions of parsonages with rich glebes, and of closes in old cathedral towns, had developed in him new talents, had held out to him the hope of prizes of a very different sort from a rectory or a prebend. His eloquence had gained for him the ear of the Legislature. His skill in fiscal and commercial affairs had won for him the confidence of the City. During four years he had been the undisputed leader of the majority of the House of Commons, and every one of those years he had made memorable by great parliamentary victories and by great public services. It should seem that his success ought to have been gratifying to the nation, and especially to that assembly of which he was the chief ornament, of which indeed he might be called the creature. The representatives of the people ought to have been well pleased to find that their approbation could, in the new order of things, do for the man whom they delighted to honour all that the mightiest of the Tudors could do for Leicester, or the most arbitrary of the Stuarts for Stratford. But strange to say the Commons soon began to regard with an evil eye that greatness which was their own work. The fault indeed was partly Montague's. With all his ability he had not the wisdom to avert, by suavity and moderation, that curse, that inseparable concomitant of prosperity and glory, which the ancients personified under the name of Nemesis. His head, strong for all the purposes of debate and arithmetical calculation, was weak against the intoxicating influence of success and fame. He became proud even to insolence old companions who a very few years before had punned and rhymed with him in garrets had dined with him at cheap ordinaries had sat with him in the pit and had lent him some silver to pay his seamstress's bill hardly knew their friend charles and the great man who could not forget for one moment that he was first lord of the treasury that he was chancellor of the exchequer that he had been a regent of the kingdom that he had founded the Bank of England and the new East India Company, that he had restored the currency, that he had invented the exchequer bills, that he had planned the general mortgage, and that he had been pronounced by a solemn vote of the Commons to have deserved all the favours which he had received from the Crown. It was said that admiration of himself and contempt of others were indicated by all his gestures and written in all the lines of his face. The very way in which the little jackanapes, as the hostile pamphleteers loved to call him, strutted through the lobby, making the most of his small figure, rising on his toe and perking up his chin, made him enemies. Rash and arrogant sayings were imputed to him, and perhaps invented for him. He was accused of boasting that there was nothing that he could not carry through the House of Commons, that he could turn the majority round his finger. A crowd of libellers assailed him with much more than political hatred. Boundless rapacity and corruption were laid to his charge. He was represented as selling all the places in the revenue department for three years' purchase. The opprobrious nickname of Filcher was fastened on him. His luxury, it was said, was not less inordinate than his avarice. There was indeed an attempt made at this time to raise against the leading Whig politicians and their allies, the great moneyed men of the city, a cry much resembling the cry which, seventy or eighty years later, was raised against the English nabobs. Great wealth, suddenly acquired, is not often enjoyed with moderation, dignity, and good taste. It is therefore not impossible that there may have been some small foundation for the extravagant stories with which malcontent pamphleteers amuse the leisure of the malcontent squires. In such stories Montague played a conspicuous part. He contrived, it was said, to be at once as rich as Croesus and as riotous as Mark Antony. His stud and his cellar were beyond all price. His very lackeys turned up their noses at Claret. He and his confederates were described as spending the immense sums of which they had plundered the public in banquets of four courses, such as Lucullus might have eaten in the Hall of Apollo. A supper for twelve wigs, enriched by jobs, grants, bribes, lucky purchases, and lucky sales of stock, was cheap at eighty pounds. At the end of every course all the fine linen on the table was changed. Those who saw the pyramids of choice wild-fowl imagined that the entertainment had been prepared for fifty epicures at the least. Only six birds' nests from the Nicobar Islands were to be had in London, and all the six, bought at an enormous price, were smoking and soup on the board. These fables were destitute alike of probability and of evidence, but Grub Street could devise no fable injurious to Montague which was not certain to find credence in more than half the manor-houses and vicarages of England." It may seem strange that a man who loved literature passionately and rewarded literary merit munificently should have been more savagely reviled both in prose and verse than almost any other politician in our history, but there is really no cause for wonder. A powerful, liberal, and discerning protector of genius is very likely to be mentioned with honor long after his death, but is very likely also to be most brutally libelled during his life. In every age there will be twenty bad writers for one good one and every bad writer will think himself a good one. A ruler who neglects all men of letters alike does not wound the self-love of any man of letters. But a ruler who shows favor to the few men of letters who deserve it inflicts on the many the miseries of disappointed hope, of affronted pride, of jealousy cruel as the grave. All the rage of a multitude of authors, irritated at once by the sting of want and by the sting of vanity, is directed against the unfortunate patron. It is true that the thanks and eulogies of those whom he has befriended will be remembered when the invectives of those whom he has neglected are forgotten. But in his own time the obloquy will probably make as much noise and find as much credit as the panegyric. The name of Maecenas has been made immortal by Horace and Virgil, and is popularly used to designate an accomplished statesman who lives in close intimacy with the greatest poets and wits of his time, and heaps benefits on them with the most delicate generosity but it may well be suspected that if the verses of alpinus and fannius of bavius and mavius had come down to us we might see maecenas represented as the most niggardly and tasteless of human beings nay as a man who on system neglected and persecuted all intellectual superiority it is certain that montague was thus represented by contemporary scribblers They told the world in essays and letters and dialogues and ballads that he would do nothing for anybody without being paid either in money or in some vile services. That he not only never rewarded merit, but hated it whenever he saw it. That he practiced the meanest arts for the purpose of depressing it. That those whom he protected and enriched were not men of ability and virtue, but wretches distinguished only by their sycophancy and their low debaucheries. And this was said of the man who made the fortune of Joseph Addison, and of Isaac Newton. Nothing had done more to diminish the influence of Montague in the House of Commons than a step which he had taken a few weeks before the meeting of the Parliament. It would seem that the result of the general election had made him uneasy, and that he had looked anxiously round him for some harbour in which he might take refuge from the storms which seemed to be gathering. While his thoughts were thus employed, he learned that the auditorship of the exchequer had suddenly become vacant. The auditorship was held for life. The duties were formal and easy. The gains were uncertain, for they rose and fell with the public expenditure. But they could hardly in time of peace and under the most economical administration be less than four thousand pounds a year, and were likely in time of war to be more than double of that sum. Montague marked this great office for his own he could not indeed take it while he continued to be in charge of the public purse for it would have been indecent and perhaps illegal that he should audit his own accounts he therefore selected his brother christopher whom he had lately made a commissioner of the excise to keep the place for him there was as may easily be supposed no want of powerful and noble competitors for such a prize Leeds had, more than twenty years before, obtained from Charles the Second a patent granting the reversion to Kermarton. Godolphin, it was said, pleaded a promise made by William. But Montague maintained, and was, it seems, right in maintaining, that both the patent of Charles and the promise of William had been given under a mistake, and that the right of appointing the Auditor belonged not to the Crown, but to the Board of Treasury. He carried his point with characteristic audacity and celerity. The news of the vacancy reached London on a Sunday. On the Tuesday, the new auditor was sworn in. The ministers were amazed. Even the Chancellor, with whom Montague was on terms of intimate friendship, had not been consulted. Godolphin devoured his ill-temper. Caer ordered out his wonderful yacht and hastened to complain to the King, who was then at lieu. But what had been done could not be undone. This bold stroke placed Montague's fortune, in the lower sense of the word, out of hazard, but increased the animosity of his enemies and cooled the zeal of his adherents. In a letter written by one of his colleagues, Secretary Vernon, on the day after the appointment, the auditorship is described as at once a safe and lucrative place. But I thought, Vernon proceeds, Mr. Montague was too aspiring to stoop to anything below the height he was in, and that he least considered profit. This feeling was no doubt shared by many of the friends of the ministry. It was plain that Montague was preparing a retreat for himself. This flinching of the captain, just on the eve of a perilous campaign, naturally disheartened the whole army. It deserves to be remarked that, more than eighty years later, another great parliamentary leader was placed in a very similar situation the younger William Pitt, held in 1784, the same offices which Montague had held in 1698. Pitt was pressed in 1784 by political difficulties not less than those with which Montague had contended in 1698. Pitt was also in 1784 a much poorer man than Montague in 1698. Pitt in 1784, like Montague in 1698, had at his own absolute disposal a lucrative, sinister place in the exchequer, Pitt gave away the office which would have made him an opulent man, and gave it away in such a manner as at once to reward unfortunate merit, and to relieve the country from a burden. For this disinterestedness he was repaid by the enthusiastic applause of his followers, by the enforced respect of his opponents, and by the confidence which, through all the vicissitudes of a chequered and at length (laughs) disastrous career, The great body of Englishmen reposed in his public spirit and in his personal integrity. In the intellectual qualities of a statesman, Montague was probably not inferior to Pitt. But the magnanimity, the dauntless courage, the contempt for riches and for baubles, to which, more than to any intellectual quality, Pitt owed his long ascendancy, were wanting to Montague. End of section 4. Recording by S. T. Macduff.